Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, the podcast where we talk to great movie makers about the art and craft of, you know, making movies. I'm your host, Tim Malloy, and for our first episode, we have two of my favorite screenwriters, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, whose astonishing list of credits includes Ed Wood, The People vs. Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, Big Eyes, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and the brand new Dolomite is My Name. As they're about to explain, their collaboration was born of a conversation that they had while waiting in line at USC and continued with everyone from Milos Forman to Tim Burton to Eddie Murphy to Dave Chappelle. We talk about Dolomite creator Rudy Ray Moore and Dolomite is My Name director Craig Brewer. This episode also includes a Dave Chappelle story that I very much enjoyed. My favorite thing about this interview is how much they still make each other laugh after nearly 40 years of collaboration. They definitely, definitely made me laugh. Movie Maker Interviews is ad-free, and the only thing I would ask you is that if you like this episode, go check out MovieMaker.com or MovieMaker Magazine. There's a lot more at Movie Maker you'll like if you like this. And now, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. You'll quickly figure out who's who. I wanted to start by asking, you were roommates at USC in the mid-80s? Usually, if you don't the early eighties, yeah, that's so funny. That's the first thing I thought too. Like fall of nineteen eighty one. Yeah. Oh my goodness! If you don't kill your roommate, that's usually a really good roommate collaboration. And you guys not only didn't kill each other, you've made countless movies and TV shows that have gotten Emmys and Oscars. How, when did you realize that you actually really got along? Um, when? <laughs> I'm not sure we have realized that yet. No, that's part of the that's part of waiting. the creative relationship. Is I, I, you know. I mean, when we when we met the first day of school, uh, we started talking about Herschel Gordon Lewis and low budget horror movies, and and so we immediately sort of had a, had a connection there. Just talking about trashy old cinema. It is amazing that our very first conversation wound up being about someone who we could actually make a movie about. How did it come up in the first place? I was brand new to Los Angeles. But how did Herschel Gordon Lewis come up? No, but I was brand new to Los Angeles, and I was a film student. He was a film student. We were waiting in line. We were not roommates yet. We were waiting in line to get our um, meal card. And, um, uh, you know... Scott was Scott found out I was from out of town and we started talking about movies and oh then uh, I told you about the new art theater told me about the new art theater and the new art theater that week was showing uh, uh you know a Herschel Gordon Lewis I think double or triple bill and Herschel Gordon Lewis is kind of for the gore movie what Russ Meyer was for the was for the uh, the booby movie and um, uh, Scott had always read about Herschel Gordon Lewis but had never seen any of them I had grown up in the Midwest and had actually grown up like going to the drive-in and seeing these movies so we were sort of Talking about low, low budget, indie, you know, exploitation filmmakers right off the bat. And then I, I guess I was trying to give Larry some helpful hints for Welcome to L.A. And, right. And the new art was sort of the preeminent revival house, you know, back in the old days, children, where they would print a schedule and every every night have a different double or triple feature. Well, the new Bev still does that. So. Yeah, new Bev does. Did you become roommates after that conversation, or did it just work yes, out that way? it was. Um, uh, I had a room without a roommate and Scott actually was somehow in a room with uh, too many roommates <laughs> and um, and because of that conversation with Scott I knew that he was a local person and so I thought maybe he would like he'll, I knew he would go home sometimes on weekends and so even though I would have a roommate there was a good chance that I could like actually like kind of like have a room sometimes to myself I didn't realize you were gaming me. I was gaming so you very, the very first day I was gaming you. And so I went to the RA. I think we went to, we said, like, why don't we do this? And so we did it. 
a room of one's own. So exactly. To writing. Exactly. When did you realize that you had this? It sounds like immediately this mutual love of what would sometimes be considered bad movies. I mean, you wrote about Ed Wood. I don't know if everybody. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's bad movies. I think it was a a, a fascination with indie genre cult movies. Uh, at that time, a big part of my life was being a member of the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films run by Dr. Donald A. Reed, <laughs> which would show three or four low-budget genre movies a weekend. And uh, I, I never really technically loved horror, but I was always fascinated by the do-it-yourself quality of cheap movies. And uh, I remember like back then, uh, Charles Band used to make a lot of cheap movies that use stop motion animation which is really i thought was the coolest thing and it was so resourceful and if you don't have much money you can just you know build a monster out of clay and animate him yeah. and uh and, and yeah so that the, the 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 world of people just sort of doing it for themselves was really interesting yeah no uh, yeah what def definitely wasn't a love of bad movies it was more like a love of uh like for example, one I think our freshman year, like I put up posters of of George Romero's movies, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. and so George Romero was a perfect kind of person, a guy who was just in Pittsburgh, you know, we're making documentaries and sports <laughs> films using a TV news crew, decides to go out and make a make a, a monster movie, and made it in and left a gigantic imprint on the history of cinema. So that was, those are the kind of guys that we dug, who were at the time, you know, on the radar, but definitely not respectable. So, you know, th that we made a bond, because particularly at USC, USC at that time peri period was so, uh, the students were so much uh, Star Wars and George Lucas, and that probably still is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but we had a little bit more of an affection for, the, for more of the underbelly and the, uh, the outcast. And I think it was part of it is, too, because we both were, uh, you know, it's silly to say this because we were, we were student filmmakers at USC, but we were actually before that, both Scott and I, and I was in Indiana, he was in, in Los Angeles, were making Super 8 movies. Well, I was making a part of a work on a, on a teenage television show in the Midwest. And so it was one of those things we, we sort of had, we had already gone through that sense of do-it-yourself filmmaking. Yeah, that, that whole let's put on a show thing, I mean, you know, we, we were both doing respectively. And a, a big part of, of my life was, you know, my little troop of, it's funny is they weren't even necessarily drama kids. They, even though they're warm bodies. Kids. That's when you do they these things. Warm, they were warm bodies. That which is I, exactly that the same as Rudy. You know, so basically they, they, these people aren't them, actors. They're, no, they're, I could just get them to show yeah, up. Yeah. I, I had them under my under my control. Right. No, Craig Craig Brewer is a, is a similar kind of person where he talks about making his his first movies and it would be like, hey, we need a we want to shoot a scene in a in a in a in a gas station. Well, let's go into the gas station and, <laughs> and ask the guy behind the counter if he wants to be in the movie and he can play the gas station attendant and then all of a sudden you've got the location because he's in the movie and uh, and all of a sudden you're shooting on this on this on this place. Yeah, uh, well, I always like to tell my it's a live story, which probably made a big impact on me, which is if anyone remembers the Larry Cohen movie, It's Alive, about the killer baby. Yeah. Um, I, w I was watching it on cable, and Mike Milkman shows up. My carnation milkman, Mike. Yeah. And then the baby jumps in the back of his milk truck and kills him, and Mike's blood comes out, and Mike is not an actor. Mike is a milkman. And <laughs> next time he delivered the milk to our house, I said, Mike, I saw you on TV. What were you doing there? He says... 
Oh, the craziest thing. I was just delivering milk, and a film crew came up, and this guy named Larry Cohen ran over to me and said, can we grab you for two hours and let you star in our film? Amazing. And, yeah, stuff like that would make an impact. Like, wow, it's it's that easy. Yeah. So when you write your first script together, which is senior year, I believe? Yes. Yeah. Did you realize quickly that one of you was good at certain things and the other was good at other things? How did the collaboration break down? Well, I was really good at laying on a couch. <laughs> that was really probably one of the best things I did. And uh, uh, I, I, I knew how to type. And more importantly, I, you had a computer. I, I, in ni- 1983 <laughs> or 84, I bought myself a computer, or my dad loaned me the money. And I uh, had to drive down to the Capro factory in San Diego to get it. And uh, it was so early days that uh, you'd, you would need three five and a quarter inch floppy disks to store one screenplay <laughs> because well, it, it, it could only hold enough data. And, and the computer itself held no data. You would have to load in the operating system each time you would boot it up. Um, but I had a computer. And once you have a computer, you can do revisions. And U.S. I mean, Larry and I have sort of like been talking about this lately, and maybe we've come to some existential conclusion that at the time USC, which was the most famous film school in the world and probably still is, only required the students to write 40 pages. That was it. And Larry and I were complete freak shows when we said, let's go write a movie, because we literally did not know one person who had written a whole script, and it was not asked of the students. And looking back on it now... On one hand, it seems kind of bizarre that USC wasn't asking kids to do this, but the spec market really hadn't been invented yet. And also, without a computer to do all those revisions it, for a hundred page document is really hard. Because, I mean, I can remember, you know, high school and the first couple of years of college where you'd write a paper and then the teacher would give you notes for the revision and then you'd have to either retype it or liquid paper it or, or, cut and paste it and when i say cut and paste i mean with tape and glue sure (laughs) i don't mean with control c (laughs) and uh people um filmmakers back then the way they got discovered out of usc were was through uh short films right you know it wasn't like uh george lucas or zemeckis or any of those guys had had uh had scripts I and mean, maybe they did eventually, but they, but they, you know, they made interesting short films and that made them pop and that put them on the map. And so that was when we were there, that was a thing you get, you make, you make that 20 minute narrative uh, short at USC and then you'll get, you'll get studio attention. I mean, I'm trying to think about it and sort of do a, an overview of how sort of technology drives things. Yeah. And absolutely like Larry saying, when we were there, people broke in with 60 millimeter shorts and then if I look at it and go, okay, but then sort of computers, personal computers started showing up in people's houses in the later 80s. Yeah. And then the eight, 1988 Writer's Guild strike sort of created the spec market. And so then you've got this uh, spec boom for about 10 years. Uh, but now with, again, with technology, anybody with a decent camera can go make their own short. I mean today, yes. Right now, right now yeah. which looks really good and and... In our time, you know, you'd, you'd, oh my God, you know, when I was cutting movies in Super 8, what a nightmare. Um, you know, and you, you, you don't need a cutter, you don't need a movie at all. Uh, all you need is your, your MacBook, and you can, you can do posts in your house, you can mix it in your house. And so now we sort of come around where now, you know, you go on YouTube and you can see some insane looking, you know, eight minute short. Yeah. 
uh, you know, that some, some guy in Brazil made, and then everyone is watching it, and suddenly this, you know, Sam Raimi's watching that short, and then flying the guy up <laughs> to meet with some studio heads. Right. So how do you break down the actual writing? I mean, is someone good at structure and someone good at dialogue, or do you both kind of do everything? Um, we, we do everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just we talk things through. We we work together in the room all the time. I mean, we're both bad actors, so we act <laughs> out the parts and we, we do funny voices. <laughs> and then when it, when Although all my funny voices are the same voice. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every yes. one of your guys sounds like some version of Rudy uh, or Fred if Sanford. If, if through Czechoslovakia a little bit. <laughs> There's a weird combo. Yeah, we, we used to do a really good Milos Foreman, but then our impression of Milos got polluted by Triumph, the insult dog. Oh, That's perfect. funny. And they, really kind of, and they kind of melded together. <laughs> so we're in a room with two couches and a, and a desk and the Smothers Brothers off to the side. Um, Tommy, Dick, how you doing? <laughs> Tommy, Dick. But since there's one desk, does one person still type? No, you're, you're not listening. Yeah. Larry said he, he's on the couch. He hasn't, he hasn't left the couch since 1985. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, sit, I sit behind that desk and I, the, the second couch is for, is for you. It's for guests. <laughs> it's not for me. I'm I'm behind the desk and and I'm and I'm in that stiff chair for eight hours a day and then Larry's just kicking back on this nice couch, <laughs> doing funny voices, doing funny voices yeah. exactly. Right. And then and then around the corner, uh, down the hall there are are the uh, cork boards because we do index card all our scripts, uh, and it's it's always a grand moment when we get to the end of the first pass on the computer because then we can get rid of those fucking cards. <laughs> we can get them out of sight because they just. By the end, they're just giving us a headache. Yeah, you hate them. We, we, we hate the cards by the end. We just want it to be over with. We were just talking before we started recording about the screenwriters of A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the new Mr. Rogers movie. And one of the first things you asked was, did they have the rights before they got started? So when you get started on a biopic, you two are the masters of the biopic. Do you just start off writing about someone you're interested in? Do you obtain the rights first? Does it sometimes change? It always changes, I think. Um like for example, on Ed Wood, we had no rights. Uh, we just but we were also young and stupid. We're young and stupid, but we mm. just wanted to we just wanted to write it, and so we just started writing. And in all fairness, we probably didn't really need rights. Uh, only reason that the uh, eventually the, the studio bought the rights is because the movie was called Ed Wood, and it was it was Touchstone Pictures. Well, we had to clear is, the three the three films. Yes. But I think we had took the position that they were public domain. But we didn't know anything. Late, but we didn't know anything. But anyway, <laughs> it's one of those things. All, there's always those things. But we wrote, we wrote, we wrote as if it didn't matter. Yeah, I mean, each one, each one is different. Yeah. Uh, Larry we, Flint, for example, we didn't. Uh, we we were actually very, very cavalier yeah. about it. And when we pitched it, and Sony said they wanted to buy it, and they said, "Well, do you need the rights?" And they were looking to us as the experts because we had just done Ed Wood. We said, "No, we don't need the rights because of our third act. Our third act, which is Flint versus Falwell." is about the right to parody a public figure. Yeah. So Larry Flynn's victory at the Supreme Court gives us the right to, to make a movie about Larry Flynn. And that was basically true until at some point Columbia realized that they needed the Hustler trademark. Yeah. And so then uh, then Larry had to be approached, and then you know then they kicked us to the front of the line and said, well, you two, you two have to go meet with him, and we were scared. And but he, he ended up being a pussycat. Sure, and for like <laughs> big eyes, for example... Um, uh, we could have done that probably without rights, but we really wanted Margaret's art, and so we we tracked that we tracked Margaret down. And, and, and I mean, we made her; she was a partner on, yeah, on the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, that was that was delightful. 
Also, many, because many there was no book or anything really about her story, we we acted like journalists. We we sought her down and we we uh, you know interviewed her and, and got her story. Uh, Man on the Moon. We spent six months being journalists. Uh, Man on the Moon came to us with the rights. It, it was actually uh, brought to us with, with uh, George Shapiro, who was Andy's manager, who Danny plays in the film. And George had remained tight with the family. And so he was coming to us with the family's rights. Uh, and then because George was George, he could get us into a room with anybody. But that, that I mean, it, it became, it was fun for us. It was indulgent. But we spent, we spent literally half a year we're meeting each one of Andy's ex-girlfriends. We're meeting, we're meeting, you know, Stanley, uh, Andy's father. He's going to fly and spend a week with us. And then Carol, his sister, and then Michael, his brother, and then Mary Lou Henner from Taxi and Carol Kane from Taxi, you know, and, and, and Ed Weinberger from Taxi. And it was sort of, and then Bob Zamuda, who was just irresistible because he's just <laughs> such a troublemaker and, and, he, and he's the world's best storyteller. We and spent he a is lot Andy of time. Kaufman, so he had lots of great yes, access to Andy exactly. Kaufman. And so we spent a lot of time with Bob, a lot of time with Lynn Margulies, and uh, we we were enjoying the the journalist process. Um, and at at a certain point, we we just we we stopped caring about deadlines or anything with these biopics. We just figured this. Everyone knows this is our process that we do a lot of homework, and we compile a lot of information, and and with with guys like. Uh, with, whatever with, with all, all all these people, there there is no master source. Right. There is no definitive thick, text, definitive four hundred page book about any of these people. So it's up to us to figure out the story. I mean, I mean, uh, OJ was the first one of these where you know we were we were being handed Jeff Tubin's book, which is fantastic. Uh, but even that turned into a headache because we then felt compelled to read Marsha Clark's four books and Bob Shapiro's seven books and <laughs> OJ's three books and. And, and, and the Goldman family's books. Everyone has books. Right. And so we wanted to read everything and highlight everything. And so that's... You're, you're leaving out court transcripts. Like court, you know, oh, court and transcripts. Thousands of court transcripts. Court transcripts. And, oh, my God. And then, everything we do know, ends up articles. having court scenes for some yeah, reason. Yeah. So we have So that made writing lots. really slow. Like some, sometimes in our pieces, uh, writing becomes really slow because, you know, when you're doing something like the OJ trial or one of our unproduced scripts is about the Patty Hearst kidnapping... And there's this, you know, you start to write the scene and then there's a question about a specific fact and you kind of have to shut down to go find that fact. Uh, whether it's whether it could be as small as what, what kind of car they were driving, it could be as big as let's like, you know, what was the name of the judge? What oh, was so, the, you know? Patty Hirsch, she there's five sisters. Right. Uh, oh, wait, uh, what's the name of the second one? Right. How, like, so how old would she be that year? Exactly. And then you gotta go you gotta go look that up. And so that slows down the process instead of just saying interior Hearst dining room. Right. The girls around the table. Right. Now you're looking. And I'm up. sure some writers would do that. They would just write it that way and then plug it in later. Right. But we sort of we we're meticulous about this stuff. And and, and um, we end up not having to deal with research and fact checking once we have a printout. Yeah. Because all of our all of our factoids and research has gotten into our first draft correctly. So at that point, then there's like a big sigh of relief because you can take all those binders and notebooks and court transcripts and just shove them behind the <laughs> behind the filing cabinet, and then it, and then it's just all right. Let's do editing and rewriting of this document. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with Dolomite, Dolomite was different because Dolomite, uh, there actually wasn't that much information about most of these characters, and you know, just as just as fans, we had 
been doing the research our entire life for the most right. part because we we really knew the the story and we had met with the real Rudy Ray Moore and we had met with the real Jerry Jones and Ben Taylor and we had a a, a, a friend of ours was a guy named Mark Jason Murray who uh, is the you know world expert on all things Rudy Ray Moore and so he you know he's writing a book about Rudy uh, you know and uh, so he he was someone we could go to with any kind of question and he could provide us interviews or or uh, and so that was just a, it was it, it felt more free than uh, our last bunch of projects because uh, it was because actually we had less uh, factoids we had to look up all the time. We could, we could just write it the way we really wanted to write it because we knew these characters. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was almost taking us back to the early days of Ed Wood. Uh, again, Larry Flint, Larry Flint and Man of the Moon, I, I know we worked on continuously for one year each to do a first draft. Ed Wood... We were under the gun because we had a ticking clock that it was a spec script, but Tim Burton promised he would read it. But in six weeks, he had to go commit to make another movie. And so we had six weeks. And so we wrote in six weeks <laughs> just because we if we had this one shot with Tim Burton. Yeah. Uh, and so I mean, we didn't write Rudy that fast, but the the lack of information was a little freeing. Yeah. And, and that's just like we just know the raw basics about this cast and let's just go make up some scenes. But strange enough, I think actually most scenes have some real basis in in, in reality. So that, that's the that's the uh, the great thing about the Dolomite story is that the, some some of those things you just can't believe. Well, it actually happened, you know. Yeah, and there's really nice detail. One detail that you got in that I was I was talking to two black friends who really appreciated that this was in there. There's the scene where Derville Martin talks about lighting. Yes. And he yes. Talks about reflecting white skin or i'm sorry yeah. it's white skin absorbs black skin reflects yes and that they're like i don't know how white writers no no black skin absorbs whites thank you yeah. white skin white. reflects I no this, this actually okay, comes this, this is this, this is, is autobiographical a, this, this comes a, from our own life it's yeah. a it's a fun story this goes back a lot of times we we hear funny things and we just sock them away in our memory bank and then we pull them out decades later and, and shove them into scripts. Right. And so this was... And you don't even know until that morning that's where you're going to put that piece. It yeah. just comes. So, so we, were, we, we were right in the scene with... And, and, the, and the card, the card was uh, Dunbar, everything, everything is broken. Yeah. That's what the index card said. And, and, uh, and Derville, Derville is appalled. I think that was the card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we're just kind of riffing on, all right, what's happening here? And we know they had electrical problems. And the, and then we sort of hit upon this idea of the young DP. And the young DP is white, Nick von Sternberg. Yeah. And then we remembered this story, which was from the, the on the set of Screwed, which we directed in 1998 in Vancouver. Hmm. And Dave Chappelle... Uh, he co-stars with Norm MacDonald. Norm MacDonald. And, and Dave uh, was always really interested in, in the technology in terms of he was always wanting to look through the camera and like what kind of a lens is that and um, I always expected Dave to go off and direct a movie. Yeah, he'd do a great job. Because he, he really had an interest in kind of the, the craft side and uh, he was and, and, the, and our DP who was a little temperamental on that movie uh, was complaining about how difficult this scene it was and I don't know how they expect me to have this ready in 30 minutes and he's just bitching, bitching and Dave's like, well, what's the problem? And he says, well, you and Norm are both in the scene. Dave's like, yeah. He says, well, black people absorb light. White people reflect light. <laughs> and so I basically, I have to light you and Norm differently. 
even though you're standing next to each other. And Dave just lit up. And he just thought this was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. He says, I absorb light. And he just starts, and the whole crew is white and Canadian. So he's just walking around the set going, you reflect light. I absorb light. You reflect light. I absorb light. Yeah. And he was, he was, it was just, like his catchphrase for a couple of days. He was so, so tickled by this. <laughs> yeah. And so we were just writing the Derville scene and Derville's bitching yeah. about the DP. And then yeah, we I just don't even know which one of us said, but we I think remembered one of us said, that Chappelle like, thing. White people reflect light. <laughs> And I was like, yo, perfect. The scene was written. The scene was written right then. So we owe that scene to Dave Chappelle. That's a Dave, that, yeah, Dave, Dave Chappelle. Yeah, that was a Dave Chappelle improv that he doesn't even know about. <laughs> I wonder if even Dave Chappelle remembers uh, the, you know, talking to uh, you, Robert you, You've got his that. email, don't you? Oh, that's funny. You should, you should tell him. Right. We, we stuck him in. Send, send him a copy of Movie Maker. <laughs> He'll find out for the first time that he go. wrote a scene. Hi, Dave. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> we need you to sign this release. <laughs> <laughs> what is he suing us? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So you talked about the Patty, the Patty Hearst project. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't that go forward? That sounds spectacular. Is that just? I mean, that's what happens to projects. It's. Uh, I'm, um, I'm hoping that one, that yeah. one comes back to life. Yeah. It's, 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 oh, it's sorry. terrific. That's. Uh, oh my God! It's Patty Hearst calling. It's Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Dave Chappelle. He can talk. Oh Let's see. I want to keep this in our article though. It's Mel. That's Mel Brooks calling. No, it's Mel Brooks calling. No, we will. We'll call Mel back. This is oh, funny. it's Mel. And Mel will be. Mel Mel's a half. Mel. Mel. Mel's a half hour call. So we'll we'll talk to Mel Brooks later. Oh shit! This feels like made up for. Oh my god! It's Obama calling us. <laughs> oh no! Oh. All right, now you're gonna hear Mel leave a message. Oh my god! I'm leaving. I'm leaving all of this in. All of this is staying. Hi guys, I had Mel Brooks calling. <laughs> Oh, wait, wait, no, no, you came with the number. And my pin code is 342. Uh, what are you oh, working hey, on? Hey, okay, well, uh, like, that, that was Mel's secretary, but it's really good when this happens that it's Mel. Because yeah. then you get, you, we get these like long eight-minute messages that we, we can't erase them because they're so good. Yeah. Why did your receptionist go in the back of the room when the call came in from Mel Brooks' secretary? It's almost like she was calling. Wait, what? Never oh, mind. No, no. No, oh. I'm oh, ha, ha, right. uh, that, When we were first beginning our career, there was an executive at 20th Century Fox who would, would be take a meeting with young <laughs> writers, and she would have her person come in every once in a while, like uh, Michael Douglas is calling, <laughs> and she'd say, "And I'll, I'll call back later." Was that Sarah? Yeah. Oh, I'll call Michael Douglas back later. And I'll tell, guys, tell me what your story. Oh, is. it was such bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Even the time you knew it, it was like, all right. So, what are you working on with Mel Brooks? Uh, we're, 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 no, uh, nothing. The, we're just the twelve chairs, the musical, the thirteenth chair, thirteenth chairs. Uh, we were at Culver Studios for seven years, and Mel has an office there, and so we became pals with Mel. And yeah. he is a total joy. Yeah, oh, it's really wow. been one of the great things that have happened to us that we just be, somehow became friends with Mel Brooks, and um, you know, it was great when we were on the lot with him because we'd see him almost every day, and yeah. you know, I think we uh, we were both. Uh, like ten-year-old kids who were who were obsessed with Groucho Marx when Groucho Marx was was uh, getting older, and um, and you know we'd always like read stories about oh Ellie Gould's hanging out with, with, with Groucho Marx, <laughs> Bud Courts in bed, Bud Courts in bed with Groucho, and so we for it's for us he, you know, he's he's our Groucho. Ah, uh, that's amazing. You even have his his record over there. Yes, we do. With signed, Honor. actually, it's signed right there. This guy. God, so you don't want to make a Mel Brooks biopic? Um, I don't think he would want that. I don't know. <laughs> Is there anyone else you've always sort of dreamed of telling their story and something just didn't work out rights-wise or whatever-wise? Um, I mean, certainly we've written things. Uh, okay, well, one that fell apart over the rights 
uh, was uh, the infamous Village People Project, yeah. which wow. we worked on for many months, and we set it up at Sony, and uh, we, uh, we we got flown to Paris to meet with... Un- oh, he just passed away. Henri Bololo. This is 20 years ago. Henri, B- Henri Bololo, <laughs> founder and president of Scorpio Music, <laughs> who was just a total character, and he controlled all That's the That's our rights. funny Czechoslovakian uh, <laughs> Fred Sanford voice that also no, speaks French. That wasn't Czech. <laughs> Oh, Scott and Larry. That, that's Jack. Right. Um, um, and anyway, we we got. Yeah, well, it really was more the story of, of Jacques Morelli and, and Henri Bolo. These, these, the, these, these two, two wild, wild and crazy guys who yeah. who have dreams of, of, of show business in America. And they come over here and, and Jacques Morelli uh, is a very out gay man in the 70s. And he goes to a. A nightclub in Greenwich Village, and there's a naked Indian and a naked cowboy dancing, and he's like, "Cowboys and Indians, this is America." <laughs> and so they have this idea to put together this band, which which was an underground gay act, which crossed over and became mainstream. And sort of the joke of the whole story was that America didn't seem to realize yeah. that this was a gay act. Yeah, and uh, it's it's actually it's a great story. And then the project fell apart. I won't I won't name names, but Two of the village people did not want to be outed. And this was <laughs> close to 30 years after the act had started. And right. we were just perplexed saying, you know, everyone kind of knows at this point. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a secret and it really doesn't matter and no one really cares. Right. right. And it became all the, all this like back and forth with the lawyers. It was ridiculous. And finally, we just had to walk away. It was too bad. It would have been fun. Good Lord. Is there anything you're working on now that you want to talk about? Um, we tend not to like to talk about. We used to always yeah. talk about our, our projects in development, but what happens is uh, is that uh, if some reason they don't come to fruition, uh, then people ten years from now would be like, "What happened to that Brooklyn Bridge project that you guys were right. working on?" And it's, like, it's like it's it's different than other writers because other writers have projects and they fall apart, but they're fictional projects and they just they sort of just fall apart and no one ever asks talks to them ever again because you never really knew what they were about. Right. But if we say we're doing Teddy Roosevelt, then for the next twenty years of my life, someone's going to say, uh, you know, what's, what about Teddy Roosevelt? And then right. it'll be on my Wikipedia page, and it's like, why am I talking about a project that doesn't exist? Yeah. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask: Do you have any advice that you would impart to movie makers? Just things you've learned as movie makers. Probably a lot, but anything. I mean, we've had we've had our best luck writing scripts for movies that we we really want to see. And uh, I mean, there's been very little calculation or cynicism with how we approach our career in terms of what's hot or what the marketplace is looking for. <laughs> we tend not to care. We tend to sort of pursue what is interesting to us. And, and, and you know, th- this can go in waves and, you know, every, everyone's career sort of has highs and lows. And, and, you know, when we're cooking, we can just keep setting up these things one after another. And then, you know, we'll have a dry spell for five years. And then it's harder to set up these projects. Um, but, I mean, I'll, you know, all of our biopics have been movies that we really, really were looking forward to. Yeah. And, you know, like Larry always says, if someone else had made Ed Wood, we would have been the first ones in line on Friday night. Right. No, I remember reading the first re- one of the first reviews of Ed Wood. Uh, I think it was an EW or something. And I was just like reading it. And, and I was just giddy because I realized if I was just a regular person reading this review, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this movie starts Friday. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember we, there was a full page ad in the L.A. Weekly 
for a, like a, 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 a secret midnight screening at the Vista right. Theater. Yeah. And we were just like, oh my God, we would have been the guys like in line for this this preview screening. This is so cool. But we actually wrote the movie too. (laughs) But it's a good piece of advice because if you're, if you're, if your ideas are calculated and you think, oh, they, this year they like science fiction. So I'm going to do a science fiction project. By the time you write it, they're not going to want science fiction anymore. And so, uh, you know, my, my feeling, I think our feeling is that, that if you want to see it, Maybe there's a bunch of other people who want to see it, and so it's a it's a it's sort of a modified version of uh, uh, right from your heart, uh, but it's a, sort of like you know uh, it's just kind of like if, if do something you're passionate about and that you if you want to see it you kind of know what the movie is you want to see. I mean certainly Quentin Quentin writes movies he wants to see, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and he and, puts in billboards he wants to see. <laughs> yes. So it's also you know it's it's it it, it works and and so you get people excited with you and um, um, yeah and and even if say that movie doesn't get made or people look at the script and it'll have a certain integrity to it and they may hire you for another project for the you know. Uh, it's, it's a good piece of advice, and and, and, and maybe we we've, we've been influential in terms of the kinds of scripts that people are writing when they are trying to break in, because you know in the last few years, Larry and I look at the blacklist yeah list every year, and we just start laughing because we go, all these scripts would not exist if if we hadn't written Ed Wood and Larry Flint. Yeah, the idea that people would like you know be breaking in with a script about Michael Jackson's Chimp, right. Or the early days of Madonna. This, this, right. These are all like you know the the grandchildren of our scripts, and yeah. it, it, but it, it's nice that this is sort of like the the secret history of America, and we wrote these scripts about obscure people that we found really interesting, and so it's nice that all these other writers breaking in are sort of are clearly writing stories about obscure uh, subject matter that they find interesting. Yeah, and so they are. I, I would assume they are writing to please themselves. I'm waiting to open the open up the blacklist, and some someone got really meta and wrote the Scott and Larry script. <laughs> Don't give me any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you could write it. Yeah. It's not too late. I don't have the rights. <laughs> exactly. I won't sell it to him. He has to write the Scott story. I'll have to fictionalize Larry. <laughs> Scott and Barry. <laughs> he's in a chair. He's not on a couch. See, it's not the same guy. <laughs> he has a table. He's from Michigan. He's not from Indiana. <laughs> Geographically <laughs> contiguous. It's not the same. Flarezuski. <laughs> you know, since you mentioned um, Tarantino, I've been telling everybody who listened for the last few weeks that I feel like Dolomite is a really nice kind of sequel to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because the old Hollywood breaks down and then you have these people who are like, all right, this is ours now. We're going to just take this. And then you see Dolomite, not Dolomite, Rudy Ray Moore making... <laughs> the Dolomite movie completely on his own with his friends. It's just the coolest thing to see him. It's really cool that both these films came out <laughs> at the same time. We were shooting at the same time and we were friends with Quentin and it was always really, it was really a cool time to be in Los Angeles because you drive down Sunset Boulevard and there'd be two blocks of 1969 Los Angeles. Then I'd go back to current day. Then there'd be one block of 1974 Los Angeles. And it was, it was, it was very, it was very cool. And um, definitely I think they're, they're, uh, if, if his movie wasn't so long, it'd be a great double bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean, you, you, you are right that the, the, the studio system is barely acknowledged in our movie. I mean, other than the, the front AIP. page. 
Yeah, I guess I guess AIP really isn't a studio system, but the, to Rudy, that is that is you know Sam Arkoff is as high as he ever. I, I, I mean, in, in our script, we had uh, we, we had a bunch of overly expensive exterior night scenes of Rudy walking down Hollywood Boulevard and looking up at the marquees, and we, and we were sort of trying to oversell the point of, well, oh look, there's the new Faye Dunaway movie, there's the new Raquel Welch movie, there's the new Steve McQueen movie, and making the point that these are all. You know, good-looking white people, and uh, whatever that stuff was just too expensive to shoot. Uh, but so yeah, we 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 were acknowledging the studio system a little bit, really just with establishing shots. Um, I don't have anything else. That, okay, great. I, I'm so happy to just listen to you guys. This is we can babble. We can babble. It's not babble. <coughs> it's the best advice people are going to get, and it's it's really cool to see somebody who's so pure of heart doing this. <laughs> pure of heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, cool. Thanks. Bye. Okay, that's it. If you've made it this far, I hope you'll leave five stars and subscribe, and check out MovieMaker.com. See you next Monday. <laughs>